Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, as we continue working through the book of Isaiah, we'll be looking at chapter 19 in its entirety today. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask that He would help us with His Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would help us as we come to Your Word. We um, struggle with it quite a bit, especially this particular book, as there's a lot of things that just don't really make any sense to us. It had to do with people hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But You are the same God. And your word is eternal, and it means something to us. It is the word by which we must live. It teaches us about you. It teaches us about ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds that we might know more about you, that we might know more about ourselves and our sin, that you would convict us of our sin, that we might grow closer to you, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was studying this passage this week, it's about the nation of Egypt. And a lot of times when I think of Egypt in the Scriptures, particularly in the beginning of the book of Exodus, I think of about bullies. And it made me think of my own time on the playground as a kid. And I was bullied quite a bit as a kid. I don't really understand why, but that's just how bullying is. There's a group of older boys. They decided they didn't like me. They were going to make my life horrible on the playground and in the halls and pretty much wherever I went. And that was just their M.O. Uh, My friends kept insisting to me that I tell the teachers. And I was kind of like, no, I won't do that. It wasn't even an option in my mind for whatever reason. And I just needed to figure it out on my own. Well, one day it finally escalated. On the playground, I was physically attacked. A teacher saw it. I didn't go and tell. They just saw it. And so they took me to the office and course I was thinking the whole time I was in trouble and I walked in and there was the bully sitting there a sobbing mess because he was face to face with his own authority he was face to face with someone who could deal with him the way that he had been dealing with me and actually have some reason to do so there was justice he seemed so small to me in that moment, this kid that had seemed so big and ridiculous to me had just seemed like a little child to me. And uh, from that point forward, the bullying stopped and it didn't have to worry about it anymore. The fear that I even had went away. If you remember back to that first part of the book of Exodus, if you read that first part of the book of Exodus, the people of God were under the authority of that bully, Egypt. Egypt had enslaved them. Egypt was a hard master to them. It even got to the point where Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, had ordered the death of all the male children, of all the newborn male children of the Hebrew people. It's a horrible thing. One of those babies escaped death, not on its own ability, of course, because it was just a baby. But throughout, through the Lord's own doing, saw fit that that one baby would live And not only live, but be raised in the home of Pharaoh. Be schooled as an Egyptian. And would later use that baby, Moses, to see the people of God delivered from the hands of the bully and to see the bully destroyed. In our text today, we're going to be dealing again with that bully. 
except now we're 700 years after the events of the Exodus. In the days of Isaiah, Egypt hadn't been much of an issue for Judah. They had continued to be a pagan nation and thus worshipped gods made with their own hands. And that's evidenced in our text today. Idolatry is sinful. It demands judgment, which we're going to see that again in our text today. And we're going to see how judgment here and healing are used hand in hand. And they're interrelated in this particular text. So as we look at the text, I want to look at those two main ideas. The judgment of Egypt and then the healing of Egypt. And so with that, let's look at our text. Isaiah chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 19, starting at verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against one another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians. Within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over to the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. And its canals will become foul. And the branches of, the, of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will, not, will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread its nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white, the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zon are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? When then, or where then, are your wise men? Let them tell you that, that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zon have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm, branch, or reed may do. In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become the terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because, the, because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. 
In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will worship and sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance." Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So Egypt is easily one of the most well-known nations in the Bible, definitely one of the most well-known ancient civilizations. When people think about ancient civilizations, they probably think about Egypt because of the popularization of Egypt's studies, the fascination with their culture and their monuments and the the pantheon of gods that they worshipped and all the things surrounding them is pretty fascinating stuff. And I think this is a normal fascination. They were, by all accounts, a very neat and incredible people. We owe a lot of our current civilization to the way that they did things, or at least kind of the rudiments of that. They were pioneers in science and medicine and math and art and music and architecture, and the list really just keeps going. They did a lot of cool things in Egypt. The scriptures deal with Egypt much differently, though, as they are seen as a nation of idolaters, which is exactly what they were. We always think of the plagues when we think of Egypt from and the Bible together. The plagues were God's full-on assault of the gods of Egypt, showing them to be no gods at all, just figments, just idols. Even though they were routed in the book of Exodus, they weren't completely destroyed. They managed to continue to be a very successful civilization throughout history. Yet, like the rest of the nations that we've read about, they too are facing down this Assyrian army and they will have little to offer them. Remember, the Assyrian army represents the judgment of God in this book. And it's sweeping through all the nations therein. Egypt even with all of its greatness, would be no different. So the picture here that we have of judgment is for their idolatry. But we also have a picture of their future restoration, which ultimately points forward to the only one who can restore, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's look at the first point, the judgment of Egypt. So again, just for a moment, consider the majesty, the power that all of Egypt represented then, all the things that they had, the chariots and the monuments and everything that they had. Yet here comes God in verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. And He comes to Egypt. He's riding on a swift cloud. And when He comes... 
The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The hearts of the Egyptians will melt within them. It's quite a response to the Lord coming down on the cloud. When I think of someone coming on a cloud, I think of Mary Poppins. And this isn't at all that. We shouldn't get the idea of the Lord floating in, you know, coming to play uh, all sorts of games with the kids. It's not at all what's going on here. You should think about those times in, you know, in early summer and late spring when you look out to the uh, west and you see this massive, giant, gray, ugly thing coming at us in a thunderstorm. That's kind of what's going on here, not, not Mary Poppins. The Lord is coming to cause havoc amongst the Egyptians. Oftentimes the same image is used throughout Scripture of the Lord coming on a cloud. And this is a picture of his power. This is a picture of his authority. When Christ returns, how are we told he's going to return? Riding on a cloud. Why is that? He is all-powerful. He has all authority. He can do that sort of thing. Egypt saw that, and what did they think? Oh, no. Look at what their idols are doing. They aren't gathering themselves for a standoff against an equal and opposite opponent. There's not going to be a battle in which we don't know the outcome. And it's really the worshipers that have their hearts melt. The idols just sit and stare. It's the only thing they've ever done. They can't do anything else. An idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood or stone or metal or whatever. And notice what else God is doing in verses 2 and 3. And I will stir up the Egyptians. This is the Lord doing this. I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. They'll fight each other. And verse 3, And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. I will confound or confuse their counsel. And they will inquire of idols and sorcerers and mediums and necromancers. And again, this is what's happening here is God is causing them to fight against themselves, throwing them into confusion. They're so so great is their confusion that they're turning to the things that just previous were seen trembling. They're like, oh wait, maybe they know the answer now. No, they're never going to know the answer. There's nothing there. It's just a rock. It's not going to help you. And those sorcerers and those mediums and those necromancers and all those things that also worship those rocks, they don't know the answer either. When the Lord comes in and does what He's going to do, no one can stop it. And so in verse 4, it says, I will, give, I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them. Interesting. If you go back to the Exodus, we see that Egypt themselves are a hard master. This is probably an allusion to that fact here, that hundreds of years ago Israel was the slave. Well, Egypt is going to be enslaved by a fierce king that's going to rule over them. This is no particular king in view here. I mean, you could use Assyria, but at the time that this was written, Egypt was probably under the control of Ethiopia, which is what we talked about last week. Persia is also going to come in, and and then Greece, and then Rome. And there's been fighting inside and out in this part of the world ever since. Just watch the news. 
There's no need to mention a particular king here, though Isaiah may have had one in mind. It's not that important. The next part is pretty neat, verses 5 through 10, because if you think of Egypt and you think of its geography, what is the most important part of the whole Egyptian existence? It's the Nile River. Without the Nile River, Egypt is a desert. With it, there are cities and people can live there. And so what does the Lord go after next? He goes after the Nile. And the waters of the sea will be dried up. It was oftentimes called the sea by, by the Egyptians. That was their sea. The rivers will be dry and parched. The canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. This is not going to be a good thing for Egypt. That is a fact still in this portion of Africa. Without that river, that whole northern part of Africa doesn't really do well. They're completely dependent upon that. Just keep reading and you see. Verse 8, the fishermen will mourn and lament. All their food is going to be gone. Verse 9, the workers in combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton. This was a major export for the nation of Egypt. It's all going to be gone. The farmers, of course, will not be able to sow their seed. Everything that Egypt has is going to be taken away from it. Their complete dependence upon the Nile is going to be shown. It's going to be exploited. And when the Nile dries up, it's going to cause a systemic shutdown of all of Egypt's infrastructure. Everything is going to collapse when the Nile dries up. And so what is Egypt going to do? It's going to seek wisdom. Why is this going on? Well, the Lord tells us about the wisdom of the, that Egypt is going to be seeking. Verse 11. The princes of Zon are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. It's pretty strong words there. Didn't mince any words there. This uh, stupid counsel. Where are, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Let them know that the Lord will tell them what the Lord has purposed against Egypt. He has purposed this. It's not randomly happening. Look at verse 14. Even the Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. Just in case they may somehow try to weasel their way out, the Lord is acting actively against the nation. Why would He do this? He is the Creator God. He does as He pleases. He does not consult our book of That Hurts My Feelings before He goes about His own purposes. He does as He pleases. And for whatever reason, He purposed that Egypt would completely fall apart here. And they did. By all accounts, Egypt was on a trajectory to become this world-dominating power. If you just read their history, you often are left wondering what went wrong. Why didn't they take over the entire globe? They were so smart and good at everything they did. We kind of maybe have a picture of that here in the Scriptures. Because God doesn't change. 
we can wonder about our own nation in this. I think the message is clear. We consider the world around us. We even consider the events from yesterday. We wonder about our own judgment. Is it upon us? God doesn't change. He's still in the business of judging whole nations, we can guess. He didn't stop that all of a sudden. So if you think and you read history, you can see that. Just look at some of the nations that have come and gone and maybe thought, wow, this nation will always be around. No, that's not the case. It's not the case for our own either. We don't have the luxury of Scripture, however, when it comes to a lot of those accounts. But there are patterns that arise in every civilization that fails, and you can see those. Moral depravity, increasingly bad leadership, a population that says it won't happen to us every time. It describes our own nation pretty well. It's really easy to read this and think, oh, well, that's bad news for Egypt. And along with that, think, thankfully, that's not about us. We need to look again. And I think what we really have to do is ask ourselves, what if everything failed around us? What would the world look like? I mean, it may not be helpful to look at it in this kind of, this kind of a scope. We're not talking about doomsday here, necessarily. It could be. It may happen. But what about today? What if everything just kind of unfolded in your own life today? What is it in your own life, and think about this, what is it in your own life that completely upholds and gives foundation to everything else? It was the Nile River for Egypt. It's something for you. It could be a lot of things. Usually those things go back to pride or money or both. What if those things were gone? What would your life look like? It would be rough. Then why are you clinging to them instead of clinging to Jesus Christ? The Nile River was not capable of saving Egypt at all. It was able to sustain them for a time, but the Nile River went dry as it has over the course of history. The Lord is, however, capable of saving them, and he never does go dry. They chose to worship the creature rather than the creator, and here they got to meet their creator full on. If your hope is in anything but Christ, what will happen when that is taken away? I want you to consider all the things that we could hope for in this world. Financial security, health, the health of your kids, could be a relationship that you're in. could be a reputation. There are lots of things that we could be hanging on to. And if that thing was taken away, our entire world would come apart, just like we've seen here for Egypt. Their entire world's coming apart. Rest assured, whatever it is, whatever you're hanging on to other than Christ, and all of us are hanging on to something in some way and in some degree, that thing will be tested. And those gods, whatever you're hanging on to, will sit idly by just like the idols of Egypt did, unable to really help you or do anything but sit and stare because they're nothing, nothing at all. When that happens to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, will, be, will we be found clinging to him? That's a question for us. It reminds me of the parable of the wise and foolish man, the one who built his house in the rock and the other built his house 
on the sand. And we all know the song growing up, right? The, man, the wise man's house stood firm. What happened to the foolish man's house? Well, to use the word of our text today, it trembled and it melted. There was nothing left. Christians, Christ is our rock, and if he is the builder of our houses, let us rest on that. That brings me to the second point, the healing of Egypt. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of the hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Basically, the script is going to be flipped on them. The roles are going to be reversed. Egypt is going to be afraid of Judah. But why are they going to be afraid of Judah? It's not the, it's not the Hebrew people that they're afraid of. It's their God that they're afraid of. Verse 18. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Five cities will speak the language of Canaan or of the Hebrew people because they will have sworn an allegiance to the Lord of those people. Not only that, what do we see in verse 19? In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Not only are they going to be speaking the language, they're going to be worshiping the one true God. And in verse 19, or verse 20, it continues. And it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of the hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors. And He will send them a Savior and a Defender and a Deliverer. The Lord is going to be actively saving the people of Egypt. He is going to send them a Savior. Verse 21, And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will worship with sacrifice and offering. They're going to have a relationship with the Lord. Just like Judah and Israel had had all those years. And what does that relationship begin with? Egypt saying, we're sinners. We're turning to the one true God rather than to our own idols. And what does that bring with it? This is where I want to focus. Verse 22. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Striking and healing. I think we all know what this idea is about, if you think about it. I needed constant discipline as a child, Um, just ever active discipline on my part. My parents always told me that this was because they loved me. I didn't really believe them at the time at all. But as I got older, I started to realize, as I looked at the people around me, I started to realize, you know what, that they really did care about the way that I acted. They cared about the things that I thought and the way I treated people, and that, that really did matter. And then when I had my own children, I realized fully what that meant. This idea of judgment on one hand and healing and mercy on the other and how those two things can coexist. 
made me think of a passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Please turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 12. And who more than the Hebrew people understand the discipline of the Lord? And we could go into a longer discussion here on this, but I, I want to just keep it short. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and, when, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is the purpose of this kind of discipline that is difficult for a time, but later we see the fruit of it? That we may share in His holiness. So that we can become more and more like Him. So that we can know what it means to love Him with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength. So that we can know what it means to love others as ourselves. It is so that we will live as we ought to live. That is what this kind of discipline means for the life of a believer. And so just like Egypt here, who is named then among the children of God, among the people of God, has a relationship with them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, what does it cause them then to do? And they will return to the Lord. It's good for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to have that sort of thing, to have that sort of discipline in our lives. The one that struck Egypt down only to pick him back up again and heal him. It's what he's doing here in the book of Hebrews. It's what he's doing in our own lives. We need both of those things. Striking and healing. Striking because we somehow still think that the world spins because of us. And healing to teach us more and more that it does because of him. And that we should just rest. The day that is being pointed here to in Isaiah 19 is a reality that exists only in Christ. We're not looking forward to this day. One day we'll, there will be an actual physical altar of Christianity in Egypt. And we're, you know, this isn't some sort of predictive prophecy here. This is just an idea that one day Christ sits on the throne and one day he's going to come back. He's going to ride in on his cloud. The nations of the earth will be judged and there will be people that will be his. And we've seen this same idea throughout the book of Isaiah and even this idea in verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt 
and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. That doesn't make sense because everything that we've heard so far about the Assyrians is that they're just a big old wrecking ball that's coming through and just wiping this whole portion of the earth out. And that's actually what they did. So what are we looking at here? Well, throughout the book of Isaiah, this idea of the highway is seen as removal of obstacles, granting peace, getting everything out of the way so that there can be relationship, so that there can be peace. And I love verse 25, to whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance, should take us all the way back to Genesis. What did God tell Abraham? Through your seed, who's going to be blessed? All the nations of the world. We see it right here in Isaiah chapter 19. And who is that promise about? It didn't have anything to do with Isaac. We saw that. Definitely didn't have anything to do with Jacob. Just keep going. It doesn't have anything to do with those actual men who lived and sinned and struggled and failed. It has to do with the one who didn't. Jesus Christ. The only one who can bring reconciliation. The peace that exists in this world is absolutely temporary. The peace that he brings is eternal. Jesus, by his work on the cross, reconciles enemies. Hated enemies. Enjoying company. With one another. Absolutely. We can see that happen between people. As people come to Christ. And all of a sudden these barriers are brought down. And people that didn't love one another do. But what is this reconciliation ultimately pointing for to, or to? The reconciliation that happens between God and man. That is necessary. Because man is sinful. Man is an idolater. And without that kind of reconciliation. He Deserves judgment and pain. And that's what he would bring. And that's what he would get were it not for Jesus himself. Jesus came. And when he did, his death on the cross allowed mine and yours idol-worshiping hearts to be made new again. And he took all of that idol-worship, all of that sin upon himself. He became those things. He became the object of the Father's wrath. God was riding on a cloud to Him because of me. And He took on my judgment and He took on my sin and I get His reward. And it's finished. That's the best part. It doesn't have to happen again. Even for that one sin that's really bad that no one can ever forgive me for. Right? We always have that one that we're hanging on to. Stop. It's over. It's finished. That sin that keeps sneaking around and you continually struggle with, those two, they're gone. It's finished. He paid for them. Romans 8, what does Paul say? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's Christ Jesus, our Lord. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion... We all have those things that we're clinging on to rather than Christ. Absolutely, we do. Let us cast them off that we may cling to Christ all the more. And let us rest in Him. Our sin debt is paid. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord, as we come to You in prayer, we 
recognize, even as I say these things, how difficult it is sometimes to really believe them. I know that they're true, but it, I still want to hang on to those things. I either want to cling to something that's going to save me, or I want to cling to some sort of sin that I believe is somehow relevant. Neither are true. You are the Savior, and my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Lord, help each one of us to remember those truths. It's in your name we pray. Amen.